0: I hope it's been a good start. I know uh, for me, it's been a very good start to the new year. I know you're not supposed to talk about this, but I'm going to break a rule. Uh, I was challenged on December 31st to do a fast. I'd never done a fast before. Other than a 124-hour fast when Teresa and Allison were uh, prepping to have Hannah. And he asked the church body to fast. And it's like, man, I've never fasted before, so I'm going to fast. So I fasted for 24 hours, and I thought I was going to die. And and then God worked out uh, with a lot of prayer and fasting from the church body um, at Hannah. And so I decided I wanted to go on a a fast for some health reasons and some spiritual health reasons as well. And um, so it's been... It's, it was seven days. I did a seven-day fast. Uh, if you've never done that, I highly encourage it because it's extremely hard. And it just puts you to a, a, it puts you to a new level in your thinking, I guess. Every time I was hungry, uh, which was all the time, I thought about what I needed to work on spiritually, and I just forced myself to pray uh, about whatever it is I was uh, focusing on. And there was times of complete clarity that was amazing, and then there were times where I couldn't read a Charlie Brown comic and understand what I just read. It was just really weird. Um, So anyway, I say that to say, if you're looking for something in the new year for some clarity, give yourself a two to three day fast where you drink water, tea, coffee, and that's it. and See what happens. I encourage you to do it. I know I'm going to start doing it. And uh, it also helped me get some clarity in scripture, because when I did have clarity, I, was, I would read some Bible verses, and I would see them a little bit differently than I had seen them in the past. And so this morning, we're going to start this series of the book of James. And um, Susie asked me about four months ago uh, if we would do the book of James, and I said, absolutely, that's one of my favorite books of the Bible, so let's do the book of James. Um, so I want to go over a couple tidbits, so if you can go to the, uh, James chapter 1, we're going to look at a couple tidbits on the book so we can understand a little bit about the book before we dive into what it actually says in there. So James chapter 1, verse 1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. And then he goes on, which we're going we're to go through verses uh, 2 through 8 today. But in James 1, 1, we see that this book is an epistle. And so I want to get a really good foundation for what James is. James is an epistle. An epistle is a writing directed or sent to a person or a group of people. Um, it's usually a formal letter, letter. And most people write a formal letter like an epistle, um, not imagining that it's going to get read by a bunch of other people. It's just the people that it's directed to. And in this case, it was directed to the 12 tribes scattered throughout the dispersion. So when I look at this, I go, okay, it, who, who wrote it? Who is it written to? And why was it written? And the book of James was written by, guess who? James. Good. Vern, take the easy ones. Good for you. That's what I would do as well. James was written by one of three James in the Bible. There's James, the brother of Jesus. There's James, the son of Zebedee. And there's James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, some people say you can read commentaries for hours and days. That Some people believe that Alphaeus, James, the son of Alphaeus, was the same as James, the son of Joseph. Jesus' half-brother that Joseph had before he was married to Mary. And and it just continues to go on. We're just going to say, James wrote the book. It's one of those three James. And if you figure out anything in detail that you can say, this is absolutely who it was, please enlighten me because I didn't come to a conclusion other than James wrote it. And he wrote it from Jerusalem around 58 to 60 AD, 10 to 12 years before Jerusalem was besieged by the Roman Emperor Titus. Before the temple was down and Jerusalem was besieged. Um, James was written to the 12 tribes scattered throughout the nations. And so what are the 12 tribes scattered throughout the nations? There's arguments. It said from the east, they were the uh, Babylonians. From the west, it was the Alexandrians. And that's the dispersion as they left Jerusalem. And you go, okay, uh, but it doesn't really ever clarify it. We're just going back to some historical writings that we see. So James was written by one of the three James that we see in the Bible. Most likely. It was written from Jerusalem. It was written around 58 to 60 AD. And it was written to the Jewish Christians that had been dispersed from Jerusalem when there was persecution. That's what we're going to go on. If you have a different understanding, I am. Completely open to enlightenment. I want to understand this more, but that's from everything I've read, that's what I gather from it. That's the agreed upon certainty that James wrote to Jewish Christians that scattered from Jerusalem to do different areas. They were dispersed throughout the nations. Now, as we go through the book of James, I think it's very important for every one of you to ask yourselves if you believe this is actually a divinely written word of the Lord through the Holy Spirit. From the Holy Spirit through James. I think it's important to ask that. Because if it is, it changes the way we accept it. A lot of people early on in the Christian faith would call James an epistle written on straw. I think it was Martin Luther that called it an epistle written on straw. And you see this throughout the biblical history. As they would say, James, the book of James, contradicts a lot of the writings, the Pauline writings, like the writings of Paul in the book of Romans or the book of Ephesians, it contradicts, therefore, James is not a valid book of the Bible. It shouldn't have been canonized. I've been studying this Bible for roughly 20 years, really studying it, not just reading it occasionally, you know, but really studying it for, you know, about 20 years, and I've never been able to understand why people would struggle so much with the content in James and the content in Ephesians or Romans and not be able to marry them. It it, it just seemed fairly simple to me. And so when you see these really wise biblical scholars and theologians struggle and grapple over the truth of Scripture, and one is valid and one is not, I go, "I, I don't understand what's so hard to understand here. And the argument was that James, his method of justification and salvation was different than Paul's. And as I look at Scripture, I think they complement each other. I think, the, the, I think James, his, his ju- justification teaching and his salvation teaching mirrors Paul's, but from a different lens and a different context. And that's really important to understand that context is the most important part of reading Scripture. We can take a verse in the Bible, pull it out and go, see, this is my point, and it may be totally off from what the truth is. We'll get so caught up in a doctrinal or dogmatic stance that when we read something that contradicts our current belief, we may look at it and go, well, this can't be right. So I'm either going to throw out the letter. It's not going to be valid. It's going to be an epistle written on straw. Or what we're going to do is we're going to look at this and go, "Eh, I believe what I believe. I'm good. I'm just going to pretend that doesn't exist. And I'm just going to go on with my walk. And oftentimes that can lead to apathy in our Christianity. And it can lead you to become a pseudo-Christian. And a pseudo-Christian is not one that God calls us to be. So my goal for the church, this church body, as Brian and myself and Steve and Therese and Justin, whoever preaches up here on on one of the 15 weeks that we're going through through the book of James, My my three goals that I have as we go through this book is I hope you just say, I'm going to commit for 15 weeks to go through this book of James with the church body. That's one, my hope, that you commit to doing that. And then the other is that you accept it as the written word of God. That you look at the book of James and you get past the argument that theologians have had for years and say, Look, it's in here. God put it in here for a reason. I'm going to make sense of it. I'm going to make sense of James and Ephesians. So we accept it as a written word of God. We show up for the next 15 weeks and we really say, "Okay, what does the book of James teach us? We learn from the writer what God is looking for in our lives. We we say, what is God looking for in my life personally through this? And the first subject we're going to go through really opens up the door to, Whether or not you want to understand what God is doing in your life. And lastly, I want to grow in our knowledge of the doctrines of God. I want to grow in our understanding. This Christianity thing that we all obviously want to be a part of or are interested in or are involved in already is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's a process that we go through as we continue to grow and mature to the full nature of who Christ wants us to be. So that's what we're going to do as James' brother in Christ, Paul, wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Keep a close, close watch on your doctrine. I was listening to a song this morning as a side note on the way here. I drove by myself this morning. Brenda's not feeling well. She's home with Lily. So I jumped in the truck and I, I, kids left early and brought the potluck food. Uh, Stick around for potluck. And um, the song came on. And it's about God. The the words were something like, God, thank you for your grace who helps me get rid of my religion. And my mind, my little pea brain mind went, religion that God sees as pure and faultless is taking care of widows and orphans and keeping from oneself from being polluted by the world. So even within Christian circles, they're like, God, thank you for getting rid of my religion. I just want Grace. <laughs> but, but Paul says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. He says religion that is pure and faultless is this. And so religion is important. But let's use religion defined biblically and not defined by the world. That's the important thing. So as we go through James, we're going to start in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. We already look at verse 1. A servant. Oh, I didn't go over what a servant was. Sorry, I missed that one. A servant. This word servant is doulos. It's the same word used in Romans 1.1 1, 1 when Paul says a servant or a bondservant of Jesus Christ. It is a bondservant, meaning a slave, voluntary or involuntary. We've had involuntary slaves. The world has involuntary slaves. We have them currently today across the world. And we have involuntary slaves, that is, voluntarily indentured to a master. And the question I would ask each one of you is, have you made yourself a voluntary slave to Jesus Christ? Only you can answer that. Your husband or wife may not be able to answer it. Your father or mother may not be able to answer it. You can answer whether you know here if you have voluntarily indentured yourself to God. And I hope you think about that over the next 15 weeks. Because it's an eternal, eternal question. So we're going to talk about a difficult subject this morning. It's a subject that many of us, including myself, have had a hard time understanding Uh, Throughout our Christian walk, and it's in James chapter one, verses two through eight. And it says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Let him ask in faith without no, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven out and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We're going to dissect those uh, six verses or seven verses. And the first part we're going to look at here is, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Verse two. Count it all joy when you meet trials. Some versions will say temptations. Some tri- will say trials and temptations or tribulations. Count it as joy. Well, the word of joy must mean something different than what I think it means, because that doesn't make sense. And about four months ago, I think Brian preached on this subject and I left that message challenged and encouraged because I've studied this passage and read this passage. I don't know how many times. And I left there going, I have never explained it with the clarity that Brian did that day. I remember just talking to me afterwards like, man, that was one of the best sermons I've ever heard. And I'm like, I agree. That was awesome. I understood it. I got something I learned. Uh, I got a nugget from that message. And so what I want to try and do is build upon Brian's message from three or four months ago about this same topic. And when I look at this, count it as all joy, I'm like, what does joy mean? Joy must mean something different. But joy in the Greek means cheerfulness, calm, delight, and gladness. Okay, be joyful, be calm, be glad, have delight when things are going great. Nope, nope, I read that wrong. When you meet trials of various kinds. That word trials in the Greek is adversity, temptations, or trying times. That's what trials is. It's adversity, temptations, and trying times. So I want you to be happy. I want you to be cheerful. I want you to have calm delight when you face adversity. Adversity. When you face temptations, when you face trying times. Okay, upon first reading to me, that don't make no sense. It just doesn't. When I read this, I go, this this explanation not only seems impossible, but it actually sounds unbiblical if I take certain things out of context. Because it says here in the Bible... That there is no condemnation for those in Christ. It says in the Bible that God wants to give you life abundantly. It says in the Book of Psalms that blessed is the man who his tree is planted by the waters, and that and we're going to be blessed. He who delights in the law, there is no. He promises love. He promises joy. The promises of God don't sound like trials and tribulations or trials and temptations. They don't sound like adversity. So how in the world can I marry the two things together like James and Ephesians need to be married together? How can I marry this concept that God is telling me through James that when I'm going through difficult times, when I have adversity, when I have pain, when I have struggles, I want you to be cheerful and glad. Doesn't that sound different than what the world would say? It does to me. But we also know that God works together for the good of all those who love him and are called according to his purpose. There's a lot of scriptures we can kind of blend in to have this tapestry. So I would imagine because in God's infinite wisdom, he's not going to just tell us to do something without giving us a reason why. Sometimes he just says go. Other times he says, this is what I want you to do. And here's why. Deuteronomy 28 is a perfect example blessings for obedience curses for disobedience if you obey you're blessed if you disobey you're cursed it's throughout the bible so god's going to give us a reason why he wants us to be joyful during adversity in verse three for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Right here, we have the reason, we have the reason why God is testing us. For you know that the testing, and that word testing is important, which we're going to look at here in a minute. But we're going to look at a couple of stories in the Bible about testing. Is testing is worketh, accomplish, finish, fashion. Think of fashion. When he says the jars of clay in the book of Corinthians, or one, I think 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians talks about the jars of clay. He's like, you're like a jar of clay and you're lumping me and you're doing these things and you're molding me. And so it's like, I'm going to fashion you. So he, he's testing us. He's working us. He's accomplishing, finishing fashion so that our f- faith, through our faith, it produces steadfastness. And steadfastness must finish its work so that we may be perfect and we may be complete. So here's the reason why we are called to consider difficulties and temptations and trials an occasion to be cheerful and glad versus angry and mad. It's a reason why we're supposed to look at these times of our life that are difficult and we're supposed to have a delighted calm about us. So that, again, I've got to say it again, so that, for you know that the testing of your faith leads to these things, steadfastness in its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. I don't mean to get all Pollyanna on you. I don't want to look through rose-colored glasses as I'm preaching. But I, I don't want to just say to you, when you're going through adversity, when you come if you come to counsel and be like, hey, I'm, have, I'm struggling with this, and I'm struggling with this. I don't want you to say, well, be joyful. God says so. Next. <laughs> why? Why does God want that steadfastness? To Why does he want us to be mature and complete? Why does he want us to be joyful during those struggles? And it's because this God, this creator that brought down snow out of the storehouses of heaven this morning, that God, he cares so much more, in my estimation of scripture, than your eternal life. Than he does for this tiny little glimpse of time here on earth. Not that he doesn't care about this tiny little glimpse. But he's using this tiny little glimpse to prepare you for the eternal life that he has prepared for you. Does that make sense? So we sometimes focus so much on the comforts of this tiny little period of time. When what God is doing is he's saying, I'm going to use this. Tiny little period of time, which is going to be like smoke through the air to prepare you for eternity. For forever. That's why we rejoice in trials. That's why we rejoice in adversity. Because we can say. The testing of our faith in God is a testing of our trustworthiness. We can say that our testing in our faith in God is a preparation for what he has in store for me later. But I don't want to go through these. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You want to go through them because it is revealing something in you that needs to change or it's revealing something in you. That your thoughts maybe are a little bit off, and you need a paradigm shift so that you can give glory to God and say, "I'm oh, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to spend eternity with Him." And someone say, "Well, why would God test me?" Or does God test? God doesn't test, does he? Well, it says here that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So who's testing our faith? Is it the dark one? Is it Satan? Is it the evil one? Or is it God? I'm going to confess to you, there have been things in Scripture and things in biblical, things in worldly, there have been doctrines taught of men that I've tried to find in Scripture that I can't, and everybody buys into it. I'm not saying what I'm about to say is right, but I'm going to tell you this. My jury's out. Steve and I have talked about it. We've talked about it at length. And my jury's still out. Is God all-knowing? Everybody's going to say yeah. And I say yes. But but what about a few verses that make me go, God, I need to understand you more. <laughs> I, need, I need to understand the context of certain scriptures more because Uh, you guys know me, I, I, I can't even fathom God as far as how big He is and what He's done and what He's created. All I have is these letters on a page that I can read, but when things are said and I read verses that contradict that, it makes me not doubt God, it puts me more in awe of God. It puts me to a place where I'm like, I need to search Him more so I can understand who God is because this God that the world has created may be different than the God that exists. The God in the box that's been drawn by people may be different than the God that created me. And so I want to look at scriptures and the the question asks, do you think God tests you? Or uh, does God test you? Or don't think God will test? Well, yes, God tests. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, the Israelites were going through their struggles Deuteronomy 8, we'll start in uh, verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you. So God, it says, the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Through the wandering of the wilderness, he has led you in the 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you. So one of the reasons he led them for 40 years in the wilderness was to humble them. Testing you to know what was in your heart. So God was testing the Israelites to know what was in their heart. So this is one take on it. God's all knowing. God knew what was in their heart. And he was letting them go through a situation so that they would know what was in their heart. Okay. I'm fine with that. But still, God was testing them. God was testing the Israelites. So let's go to another passage in Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis 22, we know the story of Abraham and Isaac. Many of us have read it. We've heard it through you know, communion sometimes. We talk about it during communion. And in Genesis 22, starting in verse 1, oh, we'll just do 1 and 2. It says, After these things... God tested Abraham. So it is God who's testing Abraham. And said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, obviously, this is a a physical example of something that's going to happen. It's a shadow of Christ being crucified. Take your son, your only son. So we have a picture of Abraham, the father of faith, and Isaac, his son, his only son, who is going to be sacrificed to God on this mountain. And so if you go to verse nine, it says when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar There and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. He reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son who was bound, whom he bound. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And he released him. And a ram was in the thicket. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said, Abraham, take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him. Abraham, Abraham, stop, stop. Now I know that you fear God. I tested you and you obeyed. You went through it. Didn't 11 chapters ago, God say to Abraham, go? And he went, was that not test enough? He tested Abraham again to know what was in his heart. In the 11th Psalm, It says, the Lord is is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous. But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Brothers and sisters, I can throw 15 more verses in here and make an entire message out of God testing you in order to know what you're going to do. So, yes, When it says the testing of your faith, the goal of the testing of your faith is to develop steadfastness or perseverance in some of your versions. You know, I'm not much different as a father to my own kids. I'll I'll confess to you. I I test test my children. I've been testing them since Titus was two and a half years old, splashing water all over the the floor of the bathroom. I knew he was doing it. I came in. He did it. I said, don't do it. No more. You're done. Okay. And then I leave and I hear, yeah, you know, and I peek around the corner. I see it's him, not his two little brothers. And I walk in. I said, hey, the floor is wet again. Who did that? Titus, was that you? I already knew the answer. And he goes, yeah, it was me. Okay, I told you don't do it. And he listen, I clean it up. But he didn't lie to me. I test him to this day, all my kids. You know this beautiful thing about technology. Click on the phone, you're like, oh, they are at this address, right on. I call, hey, what are you up to? Oh, I'm at Chick-fil-A. No, and I don't want to be at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> but he's honest with me. And that's what I'm testing for. And the reason I am doing that, the reason I am testing them Is to develop a perfect and complete human being. That's my goal for my children. I want to raise them up in a way that they can read the fifteenth psalm. I'm going to read that real quick. I want them to be able to read this psalm. O Lord, who shall abide in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. He who does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a morally despicable person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. My goal. For my kids is for them to be able to read that in 50 years and say, that's me, not pridefully, but that's me because I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my entire life. That's me. So I can understand, in a sense, when we go through these difficult, trying times, why God does it. Because he wants to reveal things in our hearts that need revealed. He wants to show us things that need shown. Does that make sense? Does it take these trials we go through maybe maybe a little easier and not so angry at why it's happening? Instead, maybe we can look internally And many people say, well, that's not right. That's not fair. What have I done, Job? What have I done? What have I done wrong? I've been good. I've been perfect. I give I tithe. I go to church. I help my neighbor. What have I done? Well, that's why we need to look at the next verse, because it says you need to ask for wisdom. Because I hate to break it to anybody here that thinks they're perfect, but you ain't. Because the guy sitting up here isn't. You're not. You're not. You're not. Nobody is. They're all things that were being refined with fire like gold so that we can be presented to God pure and blameless and faultless and complete. That's God's purpose so that in eternity, God's like, come in. Come in. I need you this way. I want you this way. And it's going to be painful. It's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. So it makes sense that God's going to give us help because we're going to need help. And if you look at James chapter 1, verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given to him. We need to, this the word of wisdom. I used to think that this passage of Scripture was a, the next segment, and, and we could preach this in two things, but I think they're joined. I think this concept that Trials and tribulations and trials and temptations and adversity is so difficult, but just consider it joy. Oh, I know it's supposed to lead us to heaven. I get that. But I need help understanding why I'm going through what I'm going through. I need to know why. I need to know what I need to work on. So ask God for wisdom. God, why am I struggling with fill in the blank? Why am I struggling with that? Why why is my health, my finances, my family relationships, why is my career, why is it in turmoil right now? Well, what do you need to work on? Maybe it's time and chance, and maybe it's God saying, I know this is sensitive, guys. I know it's like all of a sudden it's like, well, what am I doing? This is not health and wealth church. I what am I doing wrong? God, that's not fair, God. I'm doing the best I can. I get that. I understand that. I don't mean to say it in a whiny voice because sometimes I feel the same way too. I'm like, well, why am I going through hard times? I think I'm living pretty righteous and pure. But maybe it's not something you're doing. Maybe God knows you so well and intimate, he knows what you're capable of. You want an example? I'll give you an example. The Apostle Paul The Apostle Paul who had given his entire life to God. No questions asked. He's going through the most hard times within Christianity that we have recorded. And in 2 Corinthians chapter... uh, Oh, where am I? 2 Corinthians 7. Did I lose my place here? Oh my goodness. I think I might have... I know what I'm, I'm wanting to do. I just, I had it in my other Bible and I didn't underline it in the ESV here. Where is it? What is it? 10? What? 7-7? Seven, seven? Yeah, I'm trying to find, it's in different. Uh... It's about the thorn in the flesh. Where is that? Come on, Bible Church. Where? <laughs> I got on a roll and now I can't find it. Seven. Where is that? Uh, I, I can tell you exactly where it is in my NIB. That's why I need to underline it here. Someone I know already googled it. <coughs> the thorn in the flesh. Where is that? I'm just gonna quote it then. I don't remember. I'm gonna. Ver- I'm going You guys can look it up later to verify. He says, three times he pleaded with the Lord to take away the thorn. I think when he was in Macedonia, he said, Take away the thorn that he had gotten. And it was a messenger of Satan to torment him. And he said to God, Please take this away from me. Three times he pleaded with God. And you know what the response was? You know what he said? You know what he wrote? To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. God said, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made strong in your weakness. Paul wasn't even doing anything wrong. What sin did Paul have? He beat his body daily. What sin did Paul have? I can't find what he had. But it says, to keep me from becoming conceited. To help me of, where is it, Peg? 12-7, Twelve seven, 7 man, I was way off. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me, a messenger of Satan to harass me. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This man did nothing wrong. And God said, I know you so well. That if I remove this, you may become conceited. I need to keep you humble because I will oppose the proud, but I am going to give so much grace to you. Man, that's a tough thing to swallow. But if you can just start picturing eternity versus temporal God died for each and every one of us, every single human being in this room this morning. God died on the cross, sent his son on a cross so that we could have eternity in heaven. If that's not love, if that's not saying, look, I'm going to suffer because I know you're going to as well, then you're just not paying attention. God said, I'm going to suffer the most agonizing death so that you are prepared for me. Because I'm going to go build this house, this mansion for you, and it is going to be fantastic. I hope that makes sense. I hope it resonates. I hope you don't go away thinking, man, I didn't do anything wrong because neither did Paul. I mean, I can show you the adverse effect. I know a guy that I've known for almost 20 years. Guy went bankrupt guy was worth a bunch of money Party in, making a bunch of money he went to church every Sunday but his eyes were pretty glazed over and he always had the real fancy cars and he was living up the good life and I kept saying man you got to get your heart right with God buddy and I know I I'm coming to church I'm working on it and I just kept seeing him getting further and further and further away and his wealth kept growing, growing and growing and growing and he calls me up one day and he says Nate I need to talk he goes I just lost everything I lost it all Lost my house. Gonna lose my house. I lost my business. He goes, I am bankrupt. I don't have a pot. And I said, well, call him Jimmy. Jimmy, that is the best thing that could have happened to you. And he got mad at me. I said, that's the best thing that could have happened to you. He goes, how can you say that to me? How can you say that to me? And I said, because I have watched you become so focused on worldly things and wealth and money. And God wants you so bad. He had to get you back down so that He can build you back up. You were serving the wrong God. And if you think this life is going to be better than the next one, you're right. If you're not serving God, this life will be better than the next one. If you're not serving God. But if you are serving God, this life, we can't even comprehend what God has in store for us. We can't even fathom it. So my goal, again, this morning for this church is that over the next 15 weeks, you commit with your families. You commit with your families to come here to learn, to invite people, to study, to understand what James is writing to the 12 tribes scattered throughout the, the nations the dispersion. To understand what he's saying. How does it affect your life? Start in James 1.1. 1, 1. Have you become a bond servant yet? Are you an indentured servant to Jesus Christ? Have you bowed your knee and said. I'm going to serve you God. You are my king. And then, who knows what he's got in store for you? That's the beautiful thing. I mean, you're starting off on a, you're starting off on an adventure you can't even fathom. I want to close with uh, my son Jonas. We're driving uh, down, coming back from baseball practice the other day. We've been doing that Palisade study, and Jonas said, "Hey, out of the Jonas is a young man of few words, Uh, unless he's." Henri, which is very rare. But sometimes with his brothers and sisters, he's pretty quick. And he starts throwing things out together. And we just, wow, he's, he's witty. But he didn't say much. This is what he said on the way home from baseball practice on Monday. Monday? He said, Dad, I think I'm ready to be baptized. And I said, inside I'm elated. But I said, that's awesome. Let's talk about it some more. So we talked about it that night. Did some studying. And then I had to go up and grab something uh, up out of the mountains. And I just invited Jonas to join me. And that's it. Nobody else. So Jonas and I went. and We fought the snow. And we got up to where we needed to get. And grabbed what we needed to get. And on the way, I started explaining to him that when you are baptized, son, this is, this is an eternal decision you're making. This is a decision you're choosing to bend your knee for the rest of your life to the king of kings. Why do you want to, why do you want to be baptized? And he said, well... What are the benefits for you? And he said, well, one is it's just going to be nice to know that I'm I'm forgiven. And I said, well, that's a pretty awesome reason. I said, and now you get to start on an adventure that God's got for you that who knows, bud. So we broke, well, we didn't break the ice. We went around the other side of the pond where the ice wasn't quite to the edge yet. And he and I, jumped in the pond together and I baptized him into Christ and um, so he'll be taking communion with us as a church body from here on out so welcome to the kingdom son proud of you Uh, sorry to end like that but I knew that you you people would be proud so um, as we walk through this book and um, understand that a, a death a death on a cross is a high price to pay for a ransom. It's a high price. But it was paid. It was paid. It was paid in full. That's what that, when it says down payment in Galatians, it's paid in full. Or Ephesians, it's paid in full. His goal is to prepare us for eternity. It doesn't end with the baptism. His goal is to prepare us through this walk for eternity. Will you bow your heads with me in prayer, then we'll take communion together after a homily, and then we'll enjoy a fellowship meal. Father God in heaven, uh, (laughs) thank you for refining us. Thank you for your word, your written word, that we can read it, we can study it, and we can block out all the white noise of things that we think are true and go to what is true, which is the word you've given us. Father, I pray over the next four months that you guide this church body to seek truth. When the devil comes in and says, oh, not today, we're not gonna come today. We're going to stay home. We're going to watch a football game. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Father, please send your spirit, your angels, to fight that battle above that household where the voices are saying, let's stay home. Instead, let them say, let's go get fed. Father, I pray that you humble us, you test us in order to know what is in our hearts. Praise the name of Jesus. Amen.